and a young daughter hears crashing and tumbling from inside the room. She rushes to get Father Brown, who just so happens to be speaking with a famous criminologist. And they run together and break down the door of the room and see what's going on. The room's full of mysterious clues. Broken glasses are on the floor. There's a sword with a bloody tip. The young man himself is tied up and gagged in the corner. Did a shady business deal go wrong? Was he assaulted by someone or maybe something? Is there something supernatural going on? The group tries to put together these pieces and figure out what happened. Maybe there was drinking that ended in a fight, leaving a bloody sword. Or maybe the young man was tied up and tortured and then robbed. Eventually, Father Brown puts the pieces together when he sees squinting, teary eyes from above the gag. Brown realizes the young man's laughing, walks over and pulls the bandana out of his mouth, and he says, I'm a magician. He then Houdini's his way out of the ropes that he tied himself, explains that he dropped a glass while he was juggling, nicked his stomach when swallowing a sword, and fell when practicing his escape act. He locked himself in the room to practice and to keep the one rule magicians have. Magicians never reveal their secrets. And too often, we are standing before a broken down door with clues lying in front of us that we can't seem to piece together. We're bad interpreters. From small things that happen to us, like stubbing our toe or getting a flat tire, to the meaning of our lives, the grand sweep of history, to understanding the Bible itself, we have trouble putting the pieces together and figuring out the why, figuring out the meaning behind what's going on. What we need to do is walk over to the man in the corner the man who put all those clues there and pull down the bandana and listen. In other words, we need revelation. We need God to interpret things for us. We need to listen to the creator, the author, so that we can make sense of our lives, our circumstances of the world and all of history. We need God to tell us what things mean. That's what we're doing right now, isn't it? It's what we do every Sunday together. It's what we do every time we sit around the dinner table with our families and open our Bibles together, or in our chairs in the morning when we start our day by hearing from God's Word. We sit and listen to God tell us what on earth is going on. And that's what happens here in Acts 17. God, through the Apostle Paul, is dropping that bandana. Paul's going from city to city, from synagogue to synagogue, doing what Father Brown did. He's helping us understand by letting us hear from God himself. He's going from synagogue to synagogue, preaching Christ. Christ. He's the key to understanding not only the events of our lives, but understanding the seemingly scattered stories throughout the Old Testament too. Jesus is the full and final revelation that sheds light 
on everything else. Christ is the key. Christ is that word magician that once you hear it, you say, oh, now everything makes sense. He's the common theme that ties everything together. Or as Paul puts it in Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ is the center, the key, the cornerstone, the thing on which all things hold together. And here in Acts 17, we find Paul on his second missionary journey, bringing that interpretive key, Christ, from synagogue to synagogue. That's what we're looking at today, specifically Paul preaching and teaching, preaching and teaching, reasoning and explaining and proving that Christ is the key, the mystery revealed. And we're looking specifically at him doing that in the synagogues. Because there's a ton of repetition in this section of Acts, Paul's second and third missionary journeys, we're taking this section from 16, chapter 16 to chapter 20 thematically. We're going theme by theme, using select passages week by week to highlight those themes. So two weeks ago, we saw the theme of encouragement. That's the tenor of their whole journey as they set off. Uh, next week, we'll see Paul preach to the Greeks who don't know their Old Testaments the way the Jews in the synagogues do. But this week... We're in the beginning of Acts 17 and looking at Paul in the synagogues. And as we heard when we read the passage, we see this pattern in Acts 17, 1 through 15. Paul goes to a synagogue where he preaches Christ, and then we see a reaction. He comes to the synagogue in Thessalonica, he reasons with them from the scriptures, and there's a mixed response. And he does the same thing in the next town. He goes to Berea, finds the synagogue, where we can assume he preaches the same message, and again we see a mixed response. We have reasoning and response. Going to the synagogue and reasoning, showing Christ in all the scriptures, and people respond differently to that truth. How do we reason from the scriptures? How will we respond to that message of Christ? Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Remember, they're leaving Philippi. They go through these two cities and arrive in Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. Paul would start his work in each town in the synagogue if they had one. It was his customer, common practice. Synagogues are where Jews, and even we see those interested in Judaism, would gather every Sabbath to worship. They do what we do every week. They would read, pray, sing, and usually hear a sermon. Now, this was an appropriate place, the synagogue was an appropriate place for Paul to start his work in each town. First, because it's practical. It was a very practical thing for Paul to do. Paul's a Jew trained as a Pharisee. So when he visits a synagogue, he's among his people. He's comfortable with him, they're comfortable 
with him, he's comfortable with them. It's like finding a fellow Texan when you're on vacation somewhere else. They get you, you get them. But it's even more practical than that. The people in the synagogues are thinking about spiritual things. They're gathered to worship. They're thinking about things unseen, talking about the supernatural and searching for meaning and truth. They're ripe fruit, ready to hear Paul's spiritual message. This might help us think about who we can go to with the gospel. Who do you know that's publicly, outwardly, religious or spiritual? Who's willing to wear something religious that people can see, like a turban or a yarmulke, or maybe a necklace with some kind of religious symbol on it? Which neighbor do you have that's got an ideological bumper sticker or sign in their front yard that you could ask about? Take advantage of people's willingness to think beyond the physical, natural world. It's practical that Paul goes to a place of worship to talk about true worship. But even more practically, people in the synagogues know Scripture. Paul's mission is a preaching mission. He's going from town to town preaching Christ from the Scriptures. And so here in the synagogues, they're gathered to hear preaching from the Scriptures. They're familiar with them. They grew up learning them. They read from them every week. They know the covenants, the promises, the law. And so if Paul's going to base his ministry on the word, it makes sense to go to a people who know it. But it's not just practicality that drives Paul to the synagogues. It's also a theological conviction of his. He goes to the synagogue because he's been called to preach to the Jews first and then to the Greeks. In Acts 9, Jesus says that Paul's a chosen instrument of his to carry his name before both Gentiles and the children of Israel. And in Romans 1, Paul specifically says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Paul sees that the Jews have a, a first, a primary place in the gospel call, in the, in the mere preaching of the gospel. The, the Jews are the people of God, the nation of Israel that's been called out to bear God's name. In Romans 9, 4, Paul says, they are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul's abundantly clear that the gospel is for all. Everyone is saved in the same way. But he does see some kind of priority, some kind of first dibs that Jewish people get in the proclamation of the gospel. God revealed himself first to them in the Old Testament, and he's revealing himself first to them in the New. He's not going to leave his scattered people stuck in foreign lands and not call them to the Messiah he's now sent them. God is faithful, as we've been hearing all morning. And this is how he's being faithful to the physical offspring of Abraham. He's calling them to come to Christ through Paul. God, Paul, 
He's not going to accidentally miss a few Jews in a town. He's prioritizing them. Well, how does Paul do this? How does he call these people, these Jewish people? How does he call them and the God-fearing Greeks in the synagogues? Well, look at verses 2 and 3. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So what does this say Paul does? He reasons with. He reasons with them. That's the main verb there. Paul reasons with. He converses, discusses, debates. He reasons or argues, and he does that from the Scriptures. The Scriptures are the basis of his argument. The Word of God is the grounds, the foundation of what he's come to tell them. It's the soil out of which his words will grow. It's the canvas and the paint itself with which he's painting them a picture. He starts and grounds his reasoning in the scriptures because the Jews say they believe the scriptures. And also because the scriptures really and truly are the authoritative word of God. Paul and the Jews, like us, believe that God has spoken that he's revealed himself, that he's made himself known in an intelligible way. He's done so through his word. His word, nouns, verbs, sentences, stories. God's word is how we know who God is. It's how we know who we are. It's how we know what he expects of us. It's how we know what he's doing in the world. God's made himself known to rational, intelligent creatures through his word. And the message Paul's bringing is based on this word. It's consistent with this word. He's bringing new revelation, but it's revelation that's totally consistent with God's previous revelation. His new revelation is totally consistent with his previous revelation. So he's not like Muhammad coming and saying, Here's something new that's proving all of that stuff to be wrong. He's not like Joseph Smith and the Mormons saying, oh, everything you're reading, it's probably corrupted in some way. He's not bringing a fundamental change to Scripture, to the content, to the message of Scripture. He's coming with the next chapter that builds on and clarifies the previous chapter. How does he do this? How does Paul build on and clarify Scripture? Look at verse 3 with me. Verse 3 clarifies what reasoning with them from the Scriptures looks like. Looks like, we get two words, two verbs, two participles, explaining and proving. You see those two? Explaining and proving. Those words are telling us what reasoning with means. Paul reasoned with them by explaining and proving. And that first word, explaining, means opening or exposing. It's actually the same word that Luke uses in his gospel in Luke 24. And in Luke 24, Jesus opens the minds 
of the disciples to understand the scriptures. Isn't that interesting? He uses the same word. Paul's opening the scriptures. Jesus is the one who opens the minds of the disciples. Turn there with me to Luke 24. Keep your finger in uh, Acts 17, but turn to Luke 24. Back a few books in the Bible. In Luke 24, starting in verse 44, Jesus is with his disciples after the resurrection. Look what he says, starting in verse 44. Then he, Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened, there's that same word, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Now turn back to Acts 17, to the third verse. What is it that Paul's explaining? What's he opening and explaining in the scriptures? He's saying the very same thing that Jesus said. It was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. It's a two-step argument. Scripture says the Messiah, Christ, has to suffer, die, and rise again. Jesus has suffered and died and risen again. Jesus is the Messiah. Paul's bringing this same message that Jesus preached to his disciples. The message is that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Christ himself is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. What Paul's saying is that we don't have to look at the Old Testament like the magician's clues scattered about while leaving the magician himself gagged in the corner trying to put the puzzle pieces together. We can walk over to the corner and let the one who put everything there speak. And he has spoken. And he said that it's all about himself. And Paul's work is to explain and to prove that. Paul reasons from the Old Testament that the God-man Jesus is the subject of the Old Testament. Christ is the center, the, the point, the climax of the Old Testament. Paul and Jesus and the other apostles read their Old Testament this way, and we should too. They said Scripture has one author, it's one story, it has one main character, and it has one main audience. Scripture has one author, it's one story, with one main character, and one main audience. The Bible's 66 books, dozens of human authors, but behind them all is one divine author. And this author is unchanging, infinitely wise, all-powerful. And so his plan and work in the world is unchanging, infinitely wise, and can't be thwarted. And so that means that the Bible is one story. It's coherent and cohesive. The author doesn't start to write and then partway through, change his mind, come up with a better plan or learn something new about the characters along the way. He has the whole story from beginning to end in his mind, all at once. 
And that means that everything that happens in Scripture is intentional. And it's intentionally pointing to the one main character, to Christ. All the Old Testament is pointing to, leading to, revealing the need for, and building anticipation of the coming Christ. When God made Adam, he had Jesus, the better Adam, in mind, as we just sang. When he gave Abraham a ram in the thicket, he had Jesus in mind. When he made promises to Abraham, to Moses, to Israel, he had Jesus in mind. When he told Isaiah about the suffering servant who'd bear the iniquities of his people, he had Jesus in mind. And I would say all those human authors had the Messiah in mind as well. All these serve Christ and reveal Christ in some way so that God in Christ gets all the glory. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And those promises contained in the Old Testament and in the New have one audience in mind. You. 1 Corinthians 10.9, supplementing Romans 15.4 that we read to start our service, says we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. That's interesting, Paul saying the Israelites in Numbers put Christ to the test. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. We are those on whom the end of the ages has come. It means the stories, the people, the events, the covenants, the laws, the promises were all written down not to give us insight into some ancient culture, not for entertainment value or historical interest. The Old Testament, it's not irrelevant the way the constitution of some country that was conquered hundreds of years ago is irrelevant. No, the Old Testament was written down for you. Peter actually says that the authors of the Old Testament were serving you. How exactly does this Old Testament serve us? It serves us because the story of Scripture centered on Christ is the story of God redeeming people, the church, this church, in Christ. It's a story about God glorifying himself by having mercy on people like you. People having mercy on people in Christ and Christ alone. What are these promises that God's fulfilled in Christ? We need our Old Testaments to know. God's fulfilled the promise that sin leads to death. God's fulfilled this promise first, that sin leads to death. That's a promise, and the Bible's clear. We're all sinners. We're all born sinners, born with a death sentence looming over us. 
The good news of the gospel is that Christ has gone to the cross and taken that punishment of death on himself. Though he was without sin, he became sin for us, paying a debt he didn't owe so that that promise would be true. Christ went to the cross and died to fulfill God's promise that sin brings death. And it's there on the cross that Christ fulfills the promise of God to be merciful to people who are worthy of death. That he'd forgive sin. That he'd wash people white as snow. That he'd sprinkle them and their hearts clean. God's merciful in Christ by giving him as a substitute. God fulfills his promise to be merciful in the substitutionary death of Christ. And rising from the grave, Christ fulfills the promise that keeping the law gives life. There's a promise that breaking the law leads to death. There's a promise that keeping the law brings life. Brings righteousness. Brings fellowship with God. And it's him alone who's kept that law. And he alone overcame death and rose from the grave. He alone has earned life. And he's earned the right to give life, to give righteousness, to grant eternal fellowship with God to all who he will. And so he's also promised in Christ a future for those in him, a future where death is no more. All those who believe will live with him forever in holiness, in joy. As we look to Christ, gaze upon him and praise him forever. This is the gospel, the gospel that God was slowly revealing, foreshadowing, promising throughout the Old Testament. This is the gospel that Christ came to fully and perfectly and finally reveal. How have you responded to that gospel, to the good news that Christ has done it all, the good news that you may have life by repenting of putting yourself at the center of the story, by believing that Jesus is the Christ and putting him at the center. Are you persuaded by Scripture that Jesus is everything the Old Testament promises that he is? Look at verse 4 with me. A few of the Jews in the synagogue were, were persuaded, along with some devout, God-fearing Greeks and many leading women. But the next verse tells us that a majority of the Jews weren't persuaded. It says they're full of jealousy, full of zeal against Paul and his message. They said, no, Jesus is not the Christ. They disagreed with Paul's reading of the Old Testament. Paul's turning their world upside down because he says, you're not the king. You aren't the center of your story. Christ is. You see that in verses 6 and 7? They're accusing him of doing something, and they're right. They disagreed and were filled with jealousy because they were self-righteous. Paul says so in Romans 9. 
There he explains why many Jews reject this gospel. They did not pursue it. He's talking about righteousness. They did not pursue righteousness by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. They stumble over Jesus. They cannot see that he's the Christ because they're blinded by self-righteousness. Imagine hearing that magician sitting in the corner reveal the key to understanding the mystery, then pulling the gag back up and saying, you know what? I like my story better. I like my theory. Your story doesn't make me look very good. Your story talks about my sin. It talks about my unworthiness. And it gives all the glory to sin, self-righteousness, self-centeredness, refuses to see the truth that Christ is the center. Not just of the Old Testament, but of the universe. Anytime we're struck with that bitter feeling of jealousy, anytime we get upset that someone doesn't make a big deal of us and doesn't give us the credit we deserve, anytime we crave more than we have, we're showing our tendency, our natural tendency, to act like these unbelieving Jews. We're showing that we might rather be at the center of everything instead of Christ. What hope do self-centered people like you and me have? What hope do self-righteous, blind people have? Well, Paul tells us the solution to this problem, the self-centeredness that Paul will describe as hardness and blindness in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, but their minds were hardened. Talking about unbelieving Jews. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. What's the difference between the Jews in verse 5 from Thessalonica and those in verse 11 from Berea, who Luke says are more noble? Are those Bereans naturally better, more righteous? Are they just smarter than the Thessalonians? Thessalonians? No, the difference is they believed. They turned to the Lord. God granted them faith, and the veil was lifted. Their minds and their hearts were softened. They were saved from their self-centeredness, from their blindness, and from their sin by Christ. They received the gospel of Christ, the word Paul preached, with eagerness and diligently looked for him in the scriptures. They received Christ and studied to see him. The Bereans approached the scriptures in faith and in a faithful effort to see Christ in them. This kind of Christ-centered reading leads to Christ-centered lives. We want Christ-centered reading that leads to Christ-centered lives. 
The Bible's a, a rich and a beautiful painting. And paintings have focal points. Janae and Jaya and Sam can probably tell you some different techniques that artists use to draw the eye to one point in a painting. Might be lines that converge on a certain point. Might be color or shading that makes one part stand out. All paintings have a focal point. And the focal point of Scripture is Christ. It's a person and work of Christ that God is in that person and work of Christ. God is glorified. You and I are saved, and all of existence has its purpose. And so we, like the Bereans, have to keep that focal point in mind. Wherever we are in Scripture, we have to keep that focal point in mind. We have to see how it relates to Christ. And so one way we can do this, we can do this by listening to Paul and zooming out. You can listen to Paul and zoom out. Read the Bible as one grand story. We only get two lines summarizing Paul's teaching here in Acts 17. But Acts 13, we've already seen Paul go to a synagogue and we get a fuller description of his sermons. I'd encourage you this afternoon, maybe, to go back and read Acts 13 and hear how Paul preaches Christ from the Old Testament. But there, what you'll see is Paul give this sweeping overview of the Old Testament that culminates in Christ. When was the last time you read the Bible that way? I'd encourage everyone, at least once in your life, to read through the whole Bible rather quickly. Don't rush, but read it the way you would a novel. If you were to read a big novel, one page or maybe a half a page at a time, it would make it impossible to try and track the, the whole arc of the narrative of that story. And so I'd encourage you to find time, maybe a few months, to just read the Bible. Anytime you do other reading, waiting in line at night before bed, read the Bible. Read several chapters, even whole books at a time, and just keep going straight through. Don't stop for days on end to study one passage. And there's certainly a time and a place for that. That's kind of what we're doing right now. But if that's the only way you ever read Scripture, it's like looking at a massive, beautiful painting and zooming in on one small area with a few brush strokes. We do want to see the artist's skill in every brush stroke. But eventually, if we don't move our eyes back, if we don't step away, we can lose sight of the whole. So we always want to study those smaller parts in light of the whole. And to help us do that, again, I'd encourage you to find time to read through the whole Bible quickly. You'll start to see themes and threads. You'll find connections and hints and clues. And because you know the main character, you already know the ending. Because you're searching for Christ and his relation to it all, things will start to fall into place. And as things fall into place, the glory of God starts to shine brighter and brighter until we cry out with Paul in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. 
How beautiful is this mosaic, this tapestry? How rich and glorious is the person of Christ, who's not just a carpenter who died and rose again, but who's the Messiah of a nation, the Lord of a people, who's the fulfillment and center of all of human history, all of God's plans and promises, who's God himself in the flesh, and who's come down to save, sanctify, and glorify you. As we read the scriptures this way, Christ is rightly glorified in us, in his people. He receives the praise he deserves. And as we zoom out and see the grand picture of the story of scripture, so too will we zoom out and begin to see Christ as the center, the focal point of our lives individually and our life together as well. Because we'll start to see that we're actually part of that story. We who are in Christ, his church, his body, we're in that story too. We tend to put up blinders and focus on just what's right in front of us. What's happened to us this year. What's coming down the road a day or week from now. But church, zoom out. Don't put all your focus where God hasn't put all his focus. Christ is the key to understanding not only the Old Testament, but our lives as well. We're so zoomed in on a budget issue at church, a disagreement with another member, a physical health issue, even a sin issue we're facing in our lives. If we're so zoomed in there, we may have lost focus on Christ. We may be losing our ability to interpret and react to what we're going through rightly. In this life, we'll never be able to see the whole picture perfectly. We won't be able to see the fullness of God's wisdom in each and every moment. God hasn't revealed that to us yet. But what he has revealed is that in all things, in each moment in history, each moment of our lives, point, focus, the goal, is the glory of God in Christ. If our focus isn't on Christ, if we're not viewing ourselves and our lives and our problems in relation to Him, we're missing the point and purpose of it all. We're robbing God not only of glory, we're also robbing ourselves of the power to change, to grow, to mature in Christ. 1 Corinthians says that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's Christ, the living and reigning person, who's the power and wisdom you need not only to be saved, but to be sanctified, to be comforted, to be strengthened, to endure to the end, to put sin to death, and to be faithful in every situation God calls us to. That's what enables Paul to receive death threats, have mobs come after him. He just keeps pressing on, going to the next town and the next synagogue, seeing a few people converted, a tiny little church. He praises God and goes and does it again. He's zoomed out. 
He sees Christ as the center, the power of God. And that's why he says, Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Christ must be proclaimed if we're to grow in Him, if we're to look like Him, if we're to glorify Him in our life together as a church. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that the redeemed heart's desire? To hear the Christ we love proclaimed? To see Him by faith? To be made like Him in all His holiness and righteousness and beauty? Isn't that our desire? So Sunday mornings, we'll proclaim Him. So in life groups this week, we'll proclaim Him to one another. So in our families, we'll proclaim Him our wives, children, our parents. To one another throughout the week, we'll proclaim him. Helping one another to see him, to see his relevance to everything that's going on in our lives, and to see his love for us, his good purposes in every situation that he sovereignly brings about. So this week, as we go through our weekly rhythms, as individuals, as family, as a church, Ask yourself, what's one way I can help a brother or sister see Christ more clearly? What's one way I can help someone see Christ more clearly? As you're praying this week, consider praying for one one another, for another member, that they'd see Christ more clearly in a specific situation in their life. As we ourselves face new trials this week, pray that our own first response would be to zoom out to see them in relation to Christ, to ask ourselves, Christ is at the center of this. If he's on the throne, if he's working in me by his spirit, how does he want me to respond? We're often like Father Brown, standing before scattered clues, scattered lives, scattered dreams and desires. But Christ has spoken. He's not gagged and bound in the corner. He's loosed, risen, he's reigning. He's the center of all things. He's the key to understanding all things. He's the power of God we need to respond rightly to all things. So like Father Brown, let's listen to the man who's spoken. Like the Bereans, let's search the scriptures to find Christ. Search by faith until one day all our searching will come to an end and we stand back and see the whole thing, the whole story, the whole picture from a heavenly perspective with Christ. Father, we praise you in and through your Son. Father, you are wise, powerful, you are glorious. Grant us repentance for seeing ourselves as the the wise and glorious ones, for putting ourselves at the center. And Lord, help us to repent and put Christ as the center. Bless that seeking, Lord, that effort. Grant us faith to do so and faithfulness to press on, to endure by the power of your Son, through his Spirit. Amen.